Chapter Seven of Pellucidar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. Pellucidar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Seven: From Plight to Plight. I have never been much of a runner. I hate running. But if ever a sprinter broke into smithereens all world's records, it was I that day when I fled before those hideous beasts along the narrow spit of rocky cliff between two narrow fjords toward the Sojaraz. Just as I reached the verge of the cliff, the foremost of the brutes was upon me. He leaped and closed his massive jaws upon my shoulder. The momentum of his flying body, added to that of my own, carried the two of us over the cliff. It was a hideous fall. The cliff was almost perpendicular. At its foot broke the sea against a solid wall of rock. We struck the cliff face once in our descent, and then plunged into the salt sea. With the impact with the water, the hyenodon released his hold upon my shoulder. As I came sputtering to the surface, I looked about for some tiny foot or handhold where I might cling for a moment of rest and recuperation. The cliff itself offered me nothing, so I swam toward the mouth of the fjord. At the far end I could see that erosion from above had washed down sufficient rubble to form a narrow ribbon of beach. Toward this I swam with all my strength. Not once did I look behind me, since every unnecessary movement in swimming detracts so much from one's endurance speed. Not until I had drawn myself safely out upon the beach did I turn my eyes back toward the sea for the hyenodon. He was swimming slowly and apparently painfully toward the beach upon where I stood. I watched him for a long time, wondering why it was that such a dog-like animal was not a better swimmer. As he neared me I realized that he was weakening rapidly. I had gathered a handful of stones to be ready for his assault when he landed but in a moment I let them fall from my hands. It was evident that the brute either was no swimmer or else was severely injured, for by now he was making practically no headway. Indeed, it was with quite apparent difficulty that he kept his nose above the surface of the sea. He was not more than fifty yards from shore when he went under. I watched the spot where he had disappeared, and in a moment I saw his head reappear. The look of dumb misery in his eyes struck a chord in my breast, for I loved dogs. I forgot that he was a vicious, primordial wolf-thing, a man-eater, a scourge, and a terror. I saw only the sad eyes that looked like the eyes of Raja, my dead collie of the outer world. I did not stop to weigh and consider. In other words, I did not stop to think which I believe must be the way of men who do things, in contradistinction to those who think much and do nothing. Instead I leaped back into the water and swam out toward the drowning beast. At first he showed his teeth at my approach, but just before I reached him he went under for the second time, so that I had to dive to get him. I grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, and though he weighed as much as a Shetland pony, I managed to drag him to shore and well up upon the beach. Here I found that one of his forelegs was broken. The crash against the cliff face must have done it. By this time all the fight was out of him, so that when I had gathered a few tiny branches from some of the stunted trees that grew in the crevices of the cliff, and returned to him, 
he permitted me to set his broken leg and bind it in splints. I had to tear part of my shirt into bits to obtain a bandage, but at last the job was done. Then I sat stroking the savage head and talking to the beast in the man-dog talk with which you are familiar if you ever owned and loved a dog. When he is well, I thought, he probably will turn upon me and attempt to devour me, and against that eventuality I gathered together a pile of rocks and set to work to fashion a stone knife. We were bottled up at the head of the fjord as completely as if we had been behind prison bars. Before us spread the sojourners, and elsewhere about us rose unscalable cliffs. Fortunately, a little rivulet trickled down the side of the rocky wall, giving us ample supply of fresh water, some of which I kept constantly beside the hyenodon in a huge bowl-shaped shell, of which there were countless numbers among the rubble of the beach. For food we subsisted upon shellfish, and an occasional bird that I succeeded in knocking over with a rock, for long practice as a pitcher on prep school and varsity nines had made me an excellent shot with a hand-thrown missile. It was not long before the hyenodon's leg was sufficiently mended to permit him to rise and hobble about on three legs. I shall never forget with what intent interest I watched his first attempt. Close at my hand lay my pile of rocks. Slowly the beast came to his three good feet. He stretched himself, lowered his head, and lapped water from the drinking shell at his side, turned and looked at me, and then hobbled off toward the cliffs. Thrice he traversed the entire extent of our prison, seeking, I imagine, a loophole for escape, but finding none he returned in my direction. Slowly he came quite close to me, sniffed at my shoes, my putties, my hands, and then limped off a few feet and lay down again. Now that he was able to get around, I was a little uncertain as to the wisdom of my impulsive mercy. How could I sleep with that ferocious thing prowling about the narrow confines of our prison? Should I close my eyes, it might be to open them again to feel of those mighty jaws at my throat. To say the least, I was uncomfortable. I have had too much experience with dumb animals to bank very strongly on any sense of gratitude which may be attributed to them by inexperienced sentimentalists. I believe that some animals love their masters, but I doubt very much if their affection is the outcome of gratitude, a characteristic that is so rare as to be only occasionally traceable in the seemingly unselfish acts of man himself. But finally I was forced to sleep tired nature would be put off no longer. I simply fell asleep, willy-nilly, as I sat looking out to sea. I had been very uncomfortable since my ducking in the ocean, for though I could see the sunlight on the water halfway toward the island and upon the island itself, no ray of it fell upon us. We were well within the land of awful shadow. A perpetual half-warmth pervaded the atmosphere, but clothing was slow in drying, and so, from loss of sleep and great physical discomfort, I at last gave way to nature's demands and sank into profound slumber. When I awoke it was with a start, for a heavy body was upon me. My first thought was that the hyenadon had at last attacked me, but as my eyes opened and I struggled to rise, I saw that a man was astride me and three others bending close above him. I am no weakling, and never have been 
My experience in the hard life of the inner world has turned my thews to steel. Even such giants as Gok the Hairy One have praised my strength, but to it is added another quality which they lack, science. The man upon me held me down awkwardly, leaving me many openings, one of which I was not slow in taking advantage of, so that almost before the fellow knew that I was awake, I was upon my feet with my arms over his shoulders and about his waist, and had hurled him heavily over my head to the hard rubble of the beach where he lay quite still. In the instant that I arose I had seen the hyenadon lying asleep beside a boulder a few yards away. So nearly was he the color of the rock that he was scarcely discernible. Evidently the newcomers had not seen him. I had not more than freed myself from one of my antagonists before the other three were upon me. They did not work silently now, but charged me with savage cries, a mistake upon their part. The fact that they did not draw their weapons against me convinced me that they desired to take me alive, but I fought as desperately as if death loomed immediate and sure. The battle was short, for scarce had their first wild whoop reverberated through the rocky fjord, and they had closed upon me, than a hairy mass of demonical rage hurtled among us. It was the hyena dawn. In an instant he had pulled down one of the men, and with a single shake, terrier-like, had broken his neck. Then he was upon another. In their efforts to vanquish the wolf-dog, the savages forgot all about me, thus giving me an instant in which to snatch a knife from the loin-string of him who had first fallen, and account for another of them. Almost simultaneously the hyenadon pulled down the remaining enemy, crushing his skull with a single bite of those fearsome jaws. The battle was over, unless the beast considered me fair prey too. I waited, ready for him with knife and bludgeon, also filts from a dead foeman, but he paid no attention to me, falling to work instead to devour one of the corpses. The beast had been handicapped but little by his splinted leg, but having eaten he lay down and commenced to gnaw at the bandage. I was sitting some little distance away, devouring shellfish, of which, by the way, I was becoming exceedingly tired. Presently the hyena dawn arose and came toward me. I did not move. He stopped in front of me and deliberately raised his bandaged leg and pawed my knee. His act was as intelligible as words. He wished the bandage removed. I took the great paw in one hand and with the other hand untied and unwound the bandage, removed the splints and felt of the injured member. As far as I could judge, the bone was completely knit. The joint was stiff. When I bent it a little, the brute winched but he neither growled nor tried to pull away. Very slowly and gently I rubbed the joint and applied pressure to it for a few moments. Then I set it down upon the ground. The hyena don walked around me a few times, and then lay down at my side, his body touching mine. I laid my hand upon his head. He did not move. Slowly I scratched about his ears and neck, and down beneath the fierce jaws. The only sign he gave was to raise his chin a trifle, that I might better caress him. That was enough. From that moment I have never again felt suspicion of Roger, as I immediately named him. Somehow all sense of loneliness vanished too. I had a dog. I had never guessed precisely what it was that was lacking to life in Pellucidar, 
but now I knew it was the total absence of domestic animals. Man here had not yet reached the point where he might take the time from slaughter and escaping slaughter to make friends with any of the brute creation. I must qualify this statement a trifle and say that this was true of those tribes with which I was most familiar. The Thurians do domesticate the colossal Lidi, traversing the great Lidi plains upon the backs of these grotesque and stupendous monsters, and possibly there may also be other far-distant peoples within the great world who have tamed others of the wild things of jungle, plain, or mountain. The Thurians practice agriculture in a crude sort of way. It is my opinion that this is one of the earliest steps from savagery to civilization. The taming of wild beasts and their domestication follows. Perry argues that wild dogs were first domesticated for hunting purposes, but I do not agree with him. I believe that if their domestication were not purely the result of an accident, as, for example, my taming of the hyenodon, it came about through the desire of tribes who had previously domesticated flocks and herds to have some strong, ferocious beast to guard their roaming property. However, I lean rather more strongly to the theory of accident. As I sat there upon the beach of the little fjord, eating my unpalatable shellfish, I commenced to wonder how it had been that the four savages had been able to reach me, though I had been unable to escape from my natural prison. I glanced about in all directions, searching for an explanation. At last my eyes fell upon the bow of a small dugout protruding scarce a foot from behind a large boulder lying half in the water at the edge of the beach. At my discovery I leaped to my feet so suddenly that it brought Roger growling and bristling upon all fours in an instant. For the moment I had forgotten him, but his savage rumbling did not cause me any uneasiness. He glanced quickly about in all directions as if searching for the cause of my excitement. Then, as I walked rapidly down toward the dugout, he slunk silently after me. The dugout was similar in many respects to those which I had seen in use by the Mesops. In it were four paddles. I was much delighted as it promptly offered me the escape I had been craving. I pushed out into water that would float it, stepped in and called to Raja to enter. At first he did not seem to understand what I wished of him, but after I had paddled out a few yards he plunged through the surf and swam after me. When he had come alongside, I grasped the scruff of his neck, and after a considerable struggle, in which I several times came near to overturning the canoe, I managed to drag him aboard, where he shook himself vigorously and squatted down before me. After emerging from the fjord, I paddled southward along the coast, where presently the lofty cliffs gave way to lower and more level country. It was here, somewhere, that I should come upon the principal village of the Thurians. When, after a time, I saw in the distance what I took to be huts in a clearing near the shore, I drew quickly into land, for though I had been furnished credentials by coat, I was not sufficiently familiar with the tribal characteristics of these people to know whether I should receive a friendly welcome or not. And in case I should not, I wanted to be sure of having a canoe hidden safely away so that I might undertake the trip to the island in any event, provided, of course, that I escaped the Thurians should they prove belligerent. 
At the point where I landed the shore was quite low. A forest of pale, scrubby ferns ran down almost to the beach. Here I dragged up the dugout, hiding it well within the vegetation, and with some loose rocks built a cairn upon the beach to mark my cache. Then I turned my steps toward the Thurian village. As I proceeded, I began to speculate upon the possible actions of Raja when he should enter the presence of other men than myself. The brute was padding softly at my side, his sensitive nose constantly a-twitch, and his fierce eyes moving restlessly from side to side. Nothing would ever take Raja unawares. The more I thought upon the matter, the greater became my perturbation. I did not want Raja to attack any of the people upon whose friendship I so greatly depended, nor did I want him injured or slain by them. I wondered if Raja would stand for a leash. His head, as he paced beside me, was level with my hip. I laid my hand upon it caressingly. As I did so, he turned and looked up into my face, his jaws parting and his red tongue lolling, as you have seen your own dogs beneath a love path. "'Just been waiting all your life to be tamed and loved, haven't you, old man?' I asked. "'You're nothing but a good pup, and the man who put the hyena on your name ought to be sued for libel.' Roger bared his mighty fangs with upcurled, snarling lips and licked my hand. "'You're grinning, you old fraud, you,' I cried. "'If you're not, I'll eat you. I'll bet a doughnut you're nothing but some kid's poor old Fido masquerading around as a real live man-eater.' Roger whined, and so we walked on together toward Thuria, I talking to the beast at my side, and he seeming to enjoy my company no less than I enjoyed his. If you don't think it's lonesome wandering all by yourself through savage unknown Pellucidar, why just try it, and you will not wonder that I was glad of the company of this first dog, this living replica of the fierce and now extinct hyena dawn of the outer crust that hunted in savage packs the great elk across the snows of southern France in the days when the mastodon roamed at will over the broad continent of which the British Isles were then a part, and perchance left his footprints and his bones in the sands of Atlantis as well. Thus I dreamed as we moved on toward Thuria. My dreaming was rudely shattered by a savage growl from Raja. I looked down at him, he had stopped in his tracks as one turned to stone. A thin ridge of stiff hair bristled along the entire length of his spine. His yellow-green eyes were fastened upon the scrubby jungle at our right. I fastened my fingers in the bristles at his neck and turned my eyes in the direction that his pointed. At first I saw nothing. Then a slight movement of the bushes riveted my attention. I thought it must be some wild beast, and was glad of the primitive weapons I had taken from the bodies of the warriors who had attacked me. Presently I distinguished two eyes peering at us from the vegetation. I took a step in their direction, and as I did so a youth arose and fled precipitately in the direction we had been going. Roger struggled to be after him, but I held tightly to his neck, an act which he did not seem to relish, for he turned on me with bared fangs. I determined that now was as good a time as any to discover just how deep was Roger's affection for me. One of us could be master, and logically I was the one. He growled at me. I cuffed him sharply across the nose. He looked at me for a moment in surprised bewilderment, 
and then he growled again. I made another feint at him, expecting that it would bring him at my throat, but instead he winced and crouched down. Roger was subdued. I stooped and patted him. Then I took a piece of the rope that constituted a part of my equipment and made a leash for him. Thus we resumed our journey toward Thuria. The youth who had seen us was evidently of the Thurians. That he had lost no time in racing homeward and spreading the word of my coming was evidenced when we had come within sight of the clearing, and the village, the first real village, by the way, that I had ever seen constructed by human pellucidarians. There was a rude rectangle walled with logs and boulders, in which were a hundred or more thatched huts of similar construction. There was no gate. Ladders that could be removed by night led over the palisade. Before the village were assembled a great concourse of warriors. Inside I could see the heads of women and children peering over the top of the wall, and also farther back the long necks of Lidi topped by their tiny heads. Lidi, by the way, is both the singular and plural form of the noun that describes the huge beasts of burden of the Thurians. They are enormous quadrupeds, eighty or a hundred feet long, with very small heads perched at the top of very long slender necks. Their heads are quite forty feet from the ground. Their gait is slow and deliberate, but so enormous are their strides that, as a matter of fact, they cover the ground quite rapidly. Perry has told me that they are almost identical with the fossilized remains of the Diplodocus of the outer crust Jurassic Age. I have to take his word for it, and I guess you will, unless you know more of such matters than I. As we came inside of the warriors, the men set up a great jabbering. Their eyes were wide in astonishment, only, I presume, because of my strange garmenture, but as well from the fact that I came in company with a jalak, which is the pellucidarian name of the hyena dog. Raja tugged at his leash, growling and showing his long white fangs. He would have liked nothing better than to be at the throats of the whole aggregation. But I held him in with the leash, though it took all my strength to do it. My free hand I held above my head, palm out, in token of the peacefulness of my mission. In the foreground I saw the youth who had discovered us, and I could tell from the way he carried himself that he was quite overcome by his own importance. The warriors about him were all fine-looking fellows though shorter and squatter than the Saurians or the Amazites. Their color, too, was a bit lighter, owing, no doubt, to the fact that much of their lives is spent within the shadow of the world that hangs forever above their country. A little in advance of the others was a bearded fellow, tricked out in many ornaments. I didn't need to ask to know that he was the chieftain, doubtless Gork, father of Coke. Now to him I addressed myself. I am David, I said, Emperor of the Federated Kingdoms of Pellucidar. Doubtless you have heard of me. He nodded his head affirmatively. I come from Sari, I continued, where I just met Coke, the son of Gork. I bear a token from Coke to his father, which will prove that I am a friend. Again the warrior nodded. I am Gork, he said. Where is the token? Here, I replied, and fished into the game-bag where I had placed it. Gork and his people waited in silence. My hand searched the inside of the bag. It was empty. The token had been stolen with my arms.
End of chapter 7